The Uyghur crisis in far western China has led to over 1 million, some say upwards of 2 million, Muslim Uyghur people being interned in what the Chinese government calls re-education centres. They've steadily faced an erosion of their cultural and religious rights, forcible birth control and increasingly oppressive surveillance. They're now a shrinking minority within their own land. Sophie Richardson, China Director of Human Rights Watch, spoke to Hope Not Hate's Nick Ryan about what's really happening in Xinjiang province. You know, I mean, we don't use the term cultural genocide because we tend to be very legalistic and that's not a term that really has, you know, legal meaning. But I think it is fairly clear that the Chinese government is seeking to eradicate a distinct, authentic, original uh, Uyghur identity. It's like the same with Tibetans and uh, with some other communities too. You know, the campaign against Uyghurs plays particularly well inside and outside China because of Islamophobia and ignorance and a lot of money. Beijing really went to town on the U.S. war on terror. You know, but the Chinese government has just blithely asserted again and again and again that this is its way of dealing with the domestic terrorism problem. And, you know, didn't you people in Europe, you know, start de-radicalization campaigns too? And really, what's the difference? As far as you're aware, is there anything anywhere else in the world akin to this? Or is this really a, a unique situation? I mean, you could say that, you know, North Korea is one giant re-education center. But, you know, generally China likes to put itself in a different category <laughs> to North Korea. But, I mean, often the way that we answer that question is to say that if any other government in the world was arbitrarily detaining a million members of an ethnic or religious community, we'd probably be well underway to some sort of accountability proceedings, not stalled at the phase of an investigation. But because China is so powerful, that's an extremely difficult proposition. I mean, look at how the world responded to the Rohingya mm. or, you know, other communities that have been marginalized. But, you know, but I, I can't think of other examples of arbitrary detention and effectively sort of trying to reprogram human beings uh, to, to sort of shed their identity. And look, I mean, if, I mean, if you look back over the last 30 or 40 years, typically the response of an authoritarian regime is to simply eradicate whatever the problematic minority or community is. I mean, you know, that's clearly what the Tatendaw had in mind. You know, think Rwanda, think, you know, the Balkans. Uh, You know, I think Beijing learned the lesson from Tiananmen that you really don't want to shoot and kill people unless you absolutely have to. And if you absolutely have to, you really don't want to do that with a whole bunch of TV cameras there. And I think that's partly what explains this effort at reprogramming, but also, you know, keeping, you know, keeping that region so... Uh, isolated and and impenetrable for lots of outside observers. Am I right in saying that the region itself is is quite economically important to China, or strategically economically important? Is that is that yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, it really is the main Western route out of the country for a lot of the Central Asia focused, well, and Europe focused um, Belt and Road initiatives. But the fact remains that, you know, it's major transportation routes out to Central Asia. Um, you know, it's important strategically. Something like 80% of all of China's cotton is grown across the region. A lot of the discussions that have cropped up in the last year or so around forced labor are around light manufacturing, the apparel sector, but also cotton production. The other economic slash development agenda that's noticeably not necessarily different, but but distinct in Xinjiang is the use of, and, and I think the trialing of certain kinds of surveillance technology. 
we've written a lot about this in the last couple of years. There are lots of different surveillance technologies in use across the country, for sure. And facial recognition, you know, everybody now has biometric IDs that are chipped. Every, everyone in that, in the region? Or... Across the country, everyone across... has them. Uh, or at least almost everyone has now been issued one. But, you know, mostly based on the justifications of terrorism or other kinds of security-related pretexts, you can't walk down the block in Xinjiang without going through, you know, digital checkpoints, without, you know, iris scanners. You can't go into public buildings without having to scan your ID. Some people have QR codes posted outside their homes. So we, we actually reverse, last year did a report in which we reverse engineered an app it's, that was designed specifically for and used by Xinjiang police and other government officials that essentially is designed to track about 35 different kinds of behavior, the vast majority of them legal. And the algorithm tells officials when somebody is appearing suspicious. Officials are meant to go and find that person and talk to them and enter more information. And the app then tells them whether that person should be subject to further interrogation, let go or detained. But, you know, we're not just talking about people's criminal records. My absolute favorite one was whether somebody had started using the back door of their house rather than the front door. Whether they had started putting gas in somebody else's car, if they were socializing more or less with their neighbors, how often they prayed. It's, it's not just the fact that the state has the capacity to try to collect that information. It's that somebody somewhere in this machinery has decided that those are bad and wrong things even though the law says it doesn't matter who puts gas on the car. Does the central government refer, or has it referred recently to to these, you know, internment camps or re-education centres or whatever, or, or is there no kind of news at all? It says that, that everyone has graduated. And the we have not been able to assess this ourselves, but other people are, are of the view that some of the people who were being held in re-education centers have either been transferred into different forms of forced or compelled labor, either in the region or in other parts of China, that some have been put in formal prisons, you know, actual proper, I don't mean proper in the good sense, but <laughs> facilities that are actually designated as part of the, the, the judicial and penal system, that some have been allowed to return home, but under effective house arrest. It's very hard to confirm a lot of this. You know, the original interviews that we did for our 2018 report about the political education camps was done that summer in mostly with people in who'd managed to get out of the camps and then out of the region and into Kazakhstan. Okay. So we talked to about 60 or 70 people, about eight or 10 of whom had actually been in political education camps. Um, one of the precursors to the establishment of the camps was Chinese authorities slamming, not just slamming the borders shut so that people couldn't get out, but being very aggressive in hunting down uh, people who were fleeing. Right. Most governments think about it this way. Most governments, you know, people flee, people become refugees. They think, fuck it, go. We don't want you back. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Good yeah. um, China's a little bit different about Uyghurs and it hunts them down to force other governments to send them back. And even now, there are still about, um, I think it's somewhere between 50 and 60 Uyghurs who are sitting in limbo in immigration detention in Thailand. And they've been there for about five years now. It was originally a group of about 170 people. Um, Thailand let the women and the children go to Turkey. 
and the men are all detained. And it's not clear which way Thailand will eventually break. At least a half dozen different countries have sent Uyghurs back to China, most notably Cambodia, Pakistan, Nepal, and other countries in the region. But, you know, it's a peculiar thing when, you know, people flee, most governments just say go. And the fact that some countries have returned these refugees or asylum seekers is presumably indicative of some sort of geopolitical situated pressure, you know, diplomatic pressure or financial ties, etc. I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, look, not a lot of people say no to China anyway these days, let alone about 20 people they've never heard of and couldn't care less about. Again, go back to the Rohingya or the decision to appoint a commission of inquiry uh, for North Korea. I mean, those were both initiatives that came as a result of voted resolutions at the Human Rights Council. The last thing in the world you would want to do is put a decision about Xinjiang to a vote in the Human Rights Council, because it did lose. It's all about the money. And I think sometimes China overreaches in their interesting side stories around the two initiatives last year. And the UK actually was great on this. And actually, Karen Pierce had the guts to be the diplomat who stood up at the third committee in New York last fall to read the second of these two initiatives, calling China out for abuses in Xinjiang and, and calling for an investigation. But one of... One of the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation member states that had joined China's original counter response, subsequently withdrew after the foreign minister read what they had signed on to and said, oh, no, 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 no. Apparently, two or three of the Gulf states that supposedly signed on to China's second pushback weren't even asked. China signed it for them. You know, but who, you know, who's going to tell them? To go away. There's a lot of money at stake when these institutions start to function again. You know, when the, the Human Rights Council is coming back to work in June, we'll see what happens with the General Assembly in the fall. Um, you know, it's hard to tell which way this discussion about China and accountability is going to break at the moment for anything, including COVID. And do you think this is all complicated as well by the Trump administration? All I can say is keep taking that hydrochloric clockson or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have, they're, they, they managed to be simultaneously shockingly ignorant about how some of these institutions work and what they're meant to do and insistent that they function in particular ways. Um, you know, their idea of working with allies is to tell the allies what the position is and expect them to accept it. Lock, stock, barrel. Numbers mentioned of people who'd been sent through these, you know, centers, whatever you want to call them, camps. Um, 1 million, 1.8 million, up to 2 million. I'm guessing that's because no one exactly knows. Correct. So would it be safe in saying up to 2 million, or is that a vast over-exaggeration? The people have, I mean, we, we tend to be wary about numbers unless we can you know, really uh, ascertain them ourselves. And so we felt compelled in using the 1 million figure to explain how or who's... who's assessments that was based on how they had reached those figures. And generally, the people who have said that there are more than a million have been pointing to the addition of certain kinds of almost day release type programs where people are made to go off and do political education during the day, but are allowed to go home at night. Or, you know, or an insistence on 
some people have said that there are comparable facilities in Tibet and added that into their calculations. That's not something we've seen. I think the, and, and to be honest, I now I can't remember, at one point the State Department, I think, gave an estimate of 800,000 to 2 million, something like that. And I'm not sure how they got to their upper limit, but I think that was including people who were in different kinds of coercive programs. So, you know, we've we've continued to say approximately 1 million because we'd rather underestimate than overestimate. What's indisputable is that there are policies on paper to transfer labor out of Xinjiang and to and into other parts of the country and that there are inducements company or even requirements for for companies to take Uyghur workers on. It's very hard to assess, I think, you know, the, 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 the range of coercion, you know, especially because nobody can go and interview people who have, who have gone, who've been either been made to go on these programs or chosen them because they're the least bad of a bunch of really bad options. It's just impossible to know. I mean, but what's also very clear is that, you know, none of the companies that ought to be subscribing to the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights can go do the kind of robust human rights due diligence that they should. You know, and there's a whole debate now about these third-party auditors and whether they're actually asking the right questions or trying to talk to the right people. I think most of them aren't, <laughs> are not terribly credible. And so what we're starting to see is legislation here in the U.S., in some countries in Europe, some discussion at the European Parliament about things like import controls, you know, and possibly domestically driven investigations of companies that are operating in Xinjiang to see whether there are, you know, tainted goods in their supply chains. So you mentioned at the start of the conversation about cotton, 80% of China's cotton coming through here. So is that one of the you know, an example of a raw material which can yeah. end up in a supply chain and then transport? change into clothes or something. The legislation that's been introduced in the U.S. really is based on a rebuttable presumption, right? It, it essentially assumes that all of these products are made with forced labor unless a company can show otherwise. And there's a great organization um, that's based in London called the Global Legal Action Network that's just brought a case against the British Customs Agency, essentially making the same case um, that, that in the face of evidence that goods have been made with forced labor, that the British government should do the same thing. And whether that's, I was on a call about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not a lawyer, and it got so legal and so wonky so fast, I kind of stopped listening. <laughs> I mean, I think there are existing laws in the UK that, that would allow the government to do this, but I think there's also an effort to consider a new legislation. So what, what do you think the impact will be in the US, certainly, of that? To be totally honest, I mean, look, nobody, I, I think it's it's very clear, you know, perhaps best by the, you know, that the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act passed the other day by unanimous consent. I mean, not a lot happens here anymore by unanimous consent. At the same time, I think the the cotton and textile and apparel industries are being, you know, gutted by the pandemic. The supply chains are disrupted. Nobody, either, either people at one end of the supply chain are going back to work and there's nobody at the other end of the chain to buy stuff. <laughs> Some of these firms were already, for other reasons, starting to look to shift outside China. 
you know, I think the landscape is going to look pretty different six months from now. And I suspect that that legislation will probably either it will either it will get adopted and it won't apply maybe to very much anymore. I mean, there, there won't be many occasions to invoke it or it'll wind up being rewritten because the supply chains inside Xinjiang have changed so much. Maybe there's newer, different information. It's very hard to say, but you know, one of the companies that we had been talking to, um, you know, that sources a lot of cotton uh, from the region, I think within the first, you know, we were talking to them maybe in early March and it was, you know, it was a frustrating, but not inconsequential conversation about their operations and forced labor and due diligence and all these things. You know, a month later, they had laid off something like 70,000 people worldwide. You know, it just becomes a completely different conversation. And if the companies just aren't even home to talk to and they're collapsing, the stakes for me, for what I do, are very, very low compared to what they are for people like Rehan, you know, who have immediate family members who could suffer enormously uh, for what she does. I mean, I can call the New York Times and say whatever the hell I want. Nobody's going to give my mom a hard time. You know, I people like Rehan have spines of steel in choosing to speak out, you know, and tell their stories. And I think it's indicative in a way of the distress across the Uyghur diaspora community about what's happened in Xinjiang over the last several years, that a community that in the past had flown pretty low to the ground, where people were always careful about what they said to each other and how much information they would reveal, turned and started you know, campaigning on social media, using their own names, using their family members' names, you know, trying to find information about what had happened. And I think that was born of a feeling that people had nothing left to lose. And that even if it meant enduring a certain amount of harassment or being exposed in ways that were maybe uncomfortable, they were so desperate, you know, to both to find out information about their family members and to let the world know what's happening, that they were willing to take that risk. But the whole time I've been doing China and human rights related work, it has been a, a you know, an established reality that Chinese government critics overseas, whether they were Uyghurs, whether they were people like Wei Jingsheng, whether they were people like, you know, other kinds of critics were susceptible to that kind of harassment. For a long time, it seemed like that concern hadn't necessarily reached local authorities or national governments, you know, or some national governments would sort of say, well, you know, that sort of goes with the territory and there's not much we can do about it. You know, as we've watched this incredible proliferation of debates about, you know, companies like Huawei or <laughs> compliance with international standards about reporting pandemics or epidemics or things like that, there's, I think there's a greater awareness both that problems inside China can have consequences for people around the world, but also that, you know, the Chinese government's human rights abuses don't stay inside China. They don't only play out there. They have consequences uh, beyond its borders. So you, uh, you have pessimism or optimism in terms of China and its this human rights field generally? I think that as long as people in, you know, not just diaspora communities or people who've made it to the relative safety of being able to live and work outside the country, but people inside China keep getting up out of bed and going to work and saying, I'm going to take the government to court for wrongfully detaining me, or this policy is wrong and there should be a different one, or who are visibly campaigning for justice around everything from domestic violence to environmental issues. 
you know, people want justice. I think that's a, I think that's a very human desire. And I don't think that's different inside China to other places around the world. I think the question is how much, you know, people who actually do have rights recognize these problems and want to try to help fix them. Thank you again for listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to get every episode direct to your device. If you enjoy listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast, please leave a rating or review wherever you are listening from. Doing that really helps more people discover our channel. Thank you as well to members of Hope Not Hate. Your support makes our work, including this podcast, possible. If you wish to join, head to hopenahate.org.uk and click the big red Become a Member button.